First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. He asked Kenny Palmer on the way out. Kenny Palmer just gave him a raised eyebrow and a little nod, and that's all it needed. Welcome to the Top Order podcast. On Friday, 4th March 2022, the cricketing world has temporarily stood still. When we started this podcast in 2019, it was an excuse for four friends who met through this wonderful game to sit around and talk cricket for an hour a week, just like we're at the pub. I don't think we ever imagined at this point we'd be covering this topic. From a personal point of view, this news has stung like I never imagined it could. I can't promise that in the next 40 minutes or so, we won't resort to the odd cliche about the life of a cricketing legend. We're all searching a little to try and explain the shock, anger, grief and disappointment of this past several days. I've tried to sum it up in my head many times and failed. A conversation with my brother, who is also a huge cricket fan, perhaps resonates the most when he said, yep, superheroes aren't supposed to die. Tonight, we're going to talk about perhaps one of the most important cricketers the world has ever seen. Hollywood, King, or simply Warney. Welcome to the Top Order podcast. The intro says it all really, the death of Shane Keith Warne in Koh Samui in Thailand on the 4th of March 2022. We're all standing here in Auckland a few days later, um, a pack of VB in the middle of the table, um, a few sort of sombre faces and a hell of a career to talk about. I think we've got to start really with the only Australian and only leg spinner in the room, Baldy. What are your... I guess not initial thoughts, but thoughts of the last sort of 72 hours or so. Well, I think like many people, I'm struggling to put it into context and struggling to find any words that are anywhere near appropriate to sum up the profound melancholy and and sadness that I, I think many cricket, cricket fans and all around the world would be feeling at the moment. You know, uh, for an Australian, Shane Warne was a hero. I'm one of many thousands of people the world over who became a leg spinner because of Shane Warne. Um, I am a very, very poor facsimile of his greatness, and there are many, many facsimiles of him around the world today playing cricket, some of them in parks, some of them at first-class level, some of them at at international level. Um, But we're all very, very poor facsimiles trying to aspire to a greatness that none of us could ever hope to achieve. Shane Warne, for me, was, was quintessentially Australian, and I think... A lot of Australian males of my era and my generation would like to think that there's a little bit of Shane Warne in in us as Australian males and as males in general. You know, he he wore his heart on his sleeve, and and I know I do that in in both my cricketing life and my life and in general. But he was a man who was almost the perfect blend of a few basic ingredients, and that almost summed for me. That's the only thing that I can think of that sums him up appropriately is that he was the perfect blend of a few basic ingredients that comes together in almost um, supernatural proportions as a, as a, as a bowler, you know, he was, he was an infinitely relatable character as an Australian, both to the man on the street and to billionaires and, and people at the, at the very top echelons of society. And I think 
one of the things that I struggle to come to terms with is how he managed to walk that line so successfully throughout his life. Um, people on the street can identify with Shane Warne and people who are A-list celebrities identify with him equally. Um, he was brash. He was unafraid of, of expressing his opinion and he didn't mind being on, on an island um, in terms of his his opinion and his and the forthrightness of his opinion, but he was almost prototypical, you know, in terms of his Australianness. And I think all of these things that I'm thinking about when I think about Shane Warne, very few of them actually relate to his cricket, and a lot of them relate to his personality and who he was and his flaws. And he, and he and he was a flawed individual, like we all are, like all humans are almost made him more relatable, more romantic, more identifiable as a as someone that we would like to meet, but also that we think we could have a have a beer with in a bar. So, you know, this one's for Shane and I think there'll be a few more consumed this evening. But let's let's throw it over to you guys. Um how have you reacted to his passing and and was it a an experience, an emotion that you thought that you would have at this point in your life? Uh, well, I guess I touched on uh, a bit of my thoughts the other day. I mean, I still sort of feel like that in terms of uh, it. It feels bigger than cricket, doesn't it? I mean, I, I suppose it's uh, it's like when you know Kobe Bryant, Muhammad Ali, Jonah Lomu, those kind of people that are bigger than the sport that they uh, played. And and I guess I don't know. I started thinking. Um, my wife said she just started reading Fever Pitch, um, an Arsenal fan. So uh, you know, I was very delighted to see that she'd picked that up off the shelf. And she came and showed me a page of the book and when he's talking about uh, what it's like to be a sports fan. And I, and I think it made me think of, of Warren really in that sense, because why we love sports is, be, well, speaking for myself at least, why we love sports is because the unexpected happens all the time and it, and it happens in a way that you don't really experience in any other kind of part of life, I don't think, that you just, yeah, you just don't know what's going to happen and then something amazing happens and, and you are celebrating with people that you never even like that you don't even know or you know your, your best friends and you're all just celebrating in the same moment and I think that's what Warren did for for so many people and I suppose in some ways now I feel a bit uh, cheated that I was always cheering against him that I was never really enjoying those moments and um, yeah I mean I guess from from what we're doing here we, we will try and keep the rest of this podcast probably pretty upbeat we'll be Honouring him, there's been so many tributes about him as a player and a person from from so many people who've played with him and against him and, and all those kind of things. So we thought we would do the Hall of Fame, really, and, and that's sort of our way. You know, he, I think it's will come as no surprise to anyone that he was going to be right at the top. And when we get to the top of the Hall of Fame, we'll be spending a bit of extra time talking about those players. So, yeah, we just want to celebrate what he did as a cricketer and um, yeah so looking at him for the Hall of Fame I mean we may as well start like we always do in those sessions Baldy why don't you run us through the stats and it's a it's a pretty some pretty impressive ones there yeah the stats don't really tell the whole story with with players of this caliber and of this echelon but let's run through the numbers the raw numbers 145 tests for Australia 273 innings bowling 40,705 balls for 708 wickets at an average of 25.42 and a strike rate of 57.49. Let's have a look at some of the gaudy numbers, the real, real big ones. 37 five-wicket hauls, 10 10-wicket hauls. That's good enough for second all-time in both of those categories. Uh, 17 Man of the Match awards, that's third all-time. 
Uh, he took 1,001 wickets across all formats, so he has 1,000 international wickets across tests, ODIs, and, and T20s. Um, and he also holds a couple of honours. Um, th- only really one thing he couldn't do on a cricket field, and that was score 100. So he has the most, most test runs and most combined runs across all formats without an international century but you know if this if if he was perfect then he'd be then he'd be Bradman but you know no nobody's perfect and unfortunately for Shane doesn't have an international 100 but Raj we haven't heard from you yet on the podcast what's your very first memory let's go right back to the beginning for you what's your very first memory of of Shane Warne well it's interesting i i obviously am a little bit little bit younger than than, than you guys here but my my first memory of Shane Warne is actually around the the turn of the century probably just Unfortunately, when things probably started going a little bit wrong for him, but uh, really because I loved playing Shane Warne cricket on PlayStation. <laughs> yeah. that, that's my, that's the first thing that really turned me to him. So unfortunately, he was about, what, seven years into his career by then, but I'm, I'm sure some of you guys remember that getting ball as your first memory of him, especially you, Binksy. Yeah, certainly for me, I would have been, I think, 13 years old, that 1993 Ashes, it, you know, the, the first series I actually remember watching a hell of a lot of was the previous English summer. I think we played the West Indies. So that was when I really started to watch a lot of test cricket. And um, we played some one-dayers. Um, and th- probably the thing that, that stands out for me was that Warren played in a couple of the warm-up games for the Ashes tour. And I think it was a bit of a deliberate plan that he didn't really show all of his tricks. And Graham Hick, who was my cricketing hero at that point, um, I was, I'm from that area in the UK. So Worcestershire was my county at that point. Smashed him all random park in, in a warm-up game. And then um, I think got 170-odd or something ridiculous in that um, Australia versus Worcestershire game. And then that first which you know needs no uh, description really um, was the you know the first memory and when he really announced himself I think onto a scene that really he then dominated for a long period of time we, we talk a lot about his impact on cricket in general I think the Ashes rivalry the fact that England hadn't won for a long long time even leading into that 93 um, Ashes and then still went without winning an Ashes series for another 12 years after that and there was a lot of rivalry between England and Australia and I think you know that was a stage that he really performed extremely well on and yeah I I mean I um I'm sort of in the middle of, of the two of you in terms of age and um I, I sort of caught the start of his international career but I didn't actually I didn't see the getting ball I, I can't remember when I first saw that but but a long time um afterwards I think because I didn't have Sky or you know the pay TV here in, in New Zealand so all I watched was the free-to-air stuff, which was usually the uh, the stuff we got, the World Series cricket kind of uh, games, the Benson Hedges series. And I had a video, I've talked about it a few different times, in 1993-94 World Series video that I just watched on repeat. The same thing with uh, the World Cup 92 video that I had. And the 93-94 World Cup uh, World Series cricket was sort of Shane Warne, one of Shane Warne's sort of first forays. And... Um, I mean, Richie Benno describes him in the, in the footage. I watched a little bit of it last night, and he describes him as Tim May's replacement. And it is so it's so funny to kind of hear him being talked about that like that. When, um, but then you know, the first time you see him on the video is a flipper to Daryl Cullinan cleaning him up. So it, it, you know, the the signs were there. And and when you saw Warren bowling in that series. It was. It's almost like a dance. I don't know if you guys can picture that or listeners can kind of picture that. But when he would toss it up, it was like a rhythm that that someone would walk down the wicket, miss the ball, and then someone w- and then Healy would just sort of all rhythmical catch the ball, take the bails off, and 
Yeah, it's just just brilliant. And um, I know we talked about it with Ken Rutherford. I went back and listened to to what we said with Ken when um, when he was in that series, and it, it's amazing that he talked about him as. Uh, one of the things that he said was that he was the most consistent bowler that he uh, that had ever bowled leg spin, and I, I, I'd be interested to hear if that resonates with you guys because I always think about leg spinners and and even worn as bowlers that bowl you know loose balls. But yeah, it, it was really interesting hearing Ken talk about him as a con- the most consistent attacking bowler that go- going around. He is the, his consistency not. We'll get to his mental skills later on, but in terms of the and the art of leg spin, it is it is the most difficult, technically difficult art form. You need to be physically strong and have the right biomechanics to be a fast bowler. You need to have big bum muscles and be tall and strong and have good good, good core to be a fast bowler. To be a great leg spin bowler requires exquisite control, absolutely exquisite muscle control and muscle memory, and it is very very hard to replicate that time after time after time. At the best, in the best of conditions, let alone being under stress, under fatigue, bowling twenty or thirty overs in a day. So Shane Warne sets himself apart from his peers, even his exceptional peers. And when you think about great leg spin control, you think about a bowler like Anil Kumble or Abdul Qadir. He exceeded all of those guys in terms of his control. He very, very, very rarely bowled a ball that he didn't intend to bowl. We'll get to this in a little bit. He might have bowled a ball short and wide of off stump that got cut for four, but very, very rarely was that a ball that he did not intend to bowl because he wasn't operating to a plan. Um, so it, my recollection of Shane Warne, particularly in the one-day game, and you see it in the one-day game in the back end of his career, his control over line and length and variation of pace is absolutely exquisite. It is unparalleled in that era or in my mind since. He was absolutely pitch perfect. It's actually quite funny when you watch the highlight packages and you see uh, you know, a short half track and you're like, what's this doing here? And then it's like a flipper or a slider that's yeah. just gone straight through and, and cleaned him up. So even those balls that looked bad, they weren't necessarily bad. It's exactly what he planned, as you said, Baldy. Mm. I just want to touch back on that getting ball because that was the genesis of Shane Warne's fame and stardom, if you like. He was already an international bowler by that point. He'd played against India and he'd played, I think, another series in between the India series and the England series. So yeah, he, he, got, was, he got seven for against the West Indies in a series. Um, 92, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. So, you know, yeah, and that kind of was his first success because he sort of, those first couple of series did not go well for him. No, and he got, he you know, Ravi Shastri took to him and, and you know, he had one for 150 famously on debut. That getting ball, though, was the perfect, I mean, people call it a fluke. People people have a look at that ball in isolation and go, oh, that was a fluke. He could never bowl that again. He And they might be right. No one can bowl that ball again, and no one can bowl it on command. But his, his control and his preparation was so good that when it met the opportunity of being able to bowl that first ball in England and he stood at the top of his mark and he said to himself, right, I'm going to rip this leg break as hard as I can. And he spent years and years and years perfecting that fiercely spun leg break he was able to to do that on command. And it worked out probably better than I think he thought it would. And I think better than anybody else thought it would as well. But that set him on a path to stardom. And I think that was the very, very first moment that I think he truly felt that he belonged in the game of test cricket and that he could conquer it at the highest level. And from there, you know, fiercely spun leg breaks, they destroyed many, many good international batters of the highest quality. 
Yeah, I think, look, I guess it's a little bit serendipitous, but Ian Botham had retired shortly before that uh, 93 series. I think he actually played a, a, a tour game against Australia. And it was almost as if Botham lent Shane Warne his script writer and said, well, I've had him for 20 years. It, it, it's over to you. And that 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 ball really sort of started, I think, a lot of that kind of story. It, interestingly, I guess, he then made a career on the fact that everyone thought that, you know, he could do that at will and I think if you look at he had a couple of shoulder operations I think 98 99 I remember the ball he bowled to Herschel Gibbs in the 99 World Cup uh, must win game against South Africa which had a lot of similarities to that game ball it drifted and it spun and it um, and, and it took the, the off stump but he didn't use it or, or didn't have the ability to pull that out as regularly and as Raj said the great thing about watching his wickets highlights how many did he get with the one that went straight on where he just bluffed the shit out of someone potentially for years yep I agree I, I actually think his real genius is not his physical skills and the strength of his shoulder and his wrist and the, all the ability to part spin on the ball and his control all that's brilliant he was so far ahead of of batters in terms of his thinking and his planning you know most bowlers wouldn't dream i certainly don't and i imagine most test bowlers don't dream of deliberately bowling a bad ball or two bad balls but Warren did that's exactly what he did you know when you have a look at those balls those flipper balls and i think there's a great um example on youtube of Warren's greatest flippers or something like that where he just he just bowls everybody neck and crop with this ball as good a flipper as you'll ever see his genius was that the balls prior to that and you and, and in that video you kind of hear it two or three times in the recording the ball before was a short wide one outside off that spun away and and whoever it was cut the Usually ball for Cullinan four. Or, or mark great bitch <laughs> yeah <laughs> cut the ball for four through the offside and then the next ball is is dragged down again but quicker and straighter and perfectly placed with that little flick of the fingers, squeeze of the fingers, and then all of a sudden Cullinan's on his way back to the dressing room or Chris Cairns or, or Atherton or Stewart or whoever it was. It, it's that level of planning that's not just a ball in advance, but three balls, five balls, an over, two overs, two years in advance. What colour was the couch, Daryl? Is possibly my favourite sledge of, you know, just out thinking a batter and his ability to out plan and out execute um, even the greatest batters in the world. You, you read about it a lot in, in his books and then in, in interviews with other players, past players, where they talking talk about playing the ball was hard, but actually playing that mental game was just as hard with Shane Warne and you were absolutely exhausted by the end of it, a session of cricket. Um, and it, it's actually quite interesting because I think we still have a little bit of that problem definitely as as Kiwis when Warren just being in the side would often be enough to get people already back on their on their back foot his his stature his sledging the way he walked around the field with his collar up all designed to get that you know wicket that ultimate goal was, was wicket so mental game was a massive part of his cricket I and I heard um there's a you know a pretty amazing um interview with Ricky Ponting on um ICC he's been sharing it around with um Ishiku has been um has interviewed him today and um, you know he's obviously super emotional and and he kind of talks about how the the only players that really did well against Warren were the players that went at him the players like Tendulkar I mean they're, they're also the greatest batters of, of the era like Tendulkar and Lara and things but you know and when I 
think back to something I watched yesterday, which was a, one of his masterclasses. One thing he was talking about was that mental game and how he, he said that he stood at the top of his mark and he, he controlled the tempo as well. It wasn't just about what's going on. He would, he would shift somewhat a fielder just to get someone thinking. I mean, lots of people do that, obviously, but, but Warren kind of said it doesn't start until I bowl this ball. Like nothing, and it, it, it's a very innocuous kind of comment, but it means everything, right? Like he's, he knows that nothing, none of this can happen without him running into bowl. So he can control the whole sense. And I think as a bowl, you know, it made me think as a bowler that quite often when I was at the top of my mark, you're just thinking, okay, I've got to bowl this, I've got to do that. And you, your mind's racing. You, But he had that sense that he could go, okay, like I'm in control here and yeah, nothing moves until I do. Absolutely. And I mean, Warren's, Warren's real genius was his ability to convince you that something was going on or something was happening when it really wasn't. I mean, if you think about, was there such a difference between the slider and the zutter and the top spinner and the flipper? <laughs> like, he had 50 names for the one that goes straight. I mean, subtly, yes, they were all different and he was able to execute them with slightly different actions and release points and all that stuff. But the end result is the ball came down the wicket and didn't spin and went straight on. That, that's that's the end result. But for the batter, they were so preoccupied with thinking about the slider and the zutter and the flipper and the top spinner and the degree of turn and not even not even accounting for natural variation of a ball that was trying to be a leg break but sometimes just didn't spin. All of these things, all of these variations of a ball that just goes straight just plants that extra mental load, that kind of that cognitive load in the batter's mind that he's not thinking unless he's unless he's Lara or Tindorka and man alive were we treated to some to some clashes between those two when when Warren was bowling. I mean they they were genuine goosebump raising privileges that you look back on and you think, man, gee, I was glad to be able to watch that on television or live at the ground. You know, like those kinds of encounters were once in a lifetime type experiences. We talk now a lot about mystery spin and, and I think that your points really just resonate in terms of the fact that he was so willing to give his time to talk to other leg spinners and kind of almost as if to say, do you know what? Anyone can pick my wrong and anyone can pick what I'm bowling. It doesn't matter whether they can pick it or not. They've still got to play it when it comes down. And I'm I'm happy to talk about the craft of leg spin and I'm happy to tell everybody around the world the difference between side spin and overspin and what it means when I change my release point. And I'm happy to talk to the opposition leg spinner about that as well. It was almost as if his impact to leg spin was as impact uh, as impactful as his impact to the Australian cricket side, Baldy as a, as a leggy, you know, does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Shane Warne comes from a long line of leg spinners who've given a lot to the game from Australia, from the New Zealander Clary Grimmett to Bill O'Reilly to Richie Benno. Even the, even the, even the, and I'll, and I'll use this in inverted commas, even the less successful leg spinners like Trevor Hones or Terry Jenner. I mean, Terry Jenner was Shane Warne's spin coach, so the, the, the lineage is direct there. All of them were very, very generous in giving back to the community of leg spin and helping other leg spinners craft their game. And it's one, it's, it's something that it's so hard to do that you almost feel like not obliged to, but you want other people to, to learn about it and be successful at it because a, a perfectly bold leg spinner, there's very little in life that's more satisfying than that moment when the ball fizzes off your third finger and it comes out perfectly. And, and you guys know, I have exclaimed, Yes, as the ball as the ball has travelled down the pitch towards the batsman, not because I know it's out, but because I'm I know that that one's come out 
like that's perfect and that was just the right experience and it's a fizzing sensation that it's hard to describe in in, in any other walk of life I, I will back you up here though because i had that very similar thought i've written something down that he must have had so many of those moments because i you know i have the same thing as a as a spinner you do feel that way and that you let the ball go and you go like you can tell half sometimes you can tell halfway down like I, this is out like I know I've done I've done it and you're sort of <laughs> celebrating and it's just brilliant. I, I, he must I just, he must have had so many of those moments. Yeah, and 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 that and that's one of the things that gives me joy to talk about Shane Warne is that his he he and I I kind of know the feeling and it gives me goosebumps to think about it. But it's so fleeting for the average human, the average leg break bowler to bowl it perfectly and know that it's come out just so wonderfully well. But he must have done that. Six balls out of six for 30 overs a day in test cricket against Lara and Tendulkar, and sometimes even all of them together, all of them together in the same side. Well, well Bordy, it must be fleeting because I've kept wickets here for a whole season, and I, I don't think I've heard you say yes once no, this I year. So. I I'm fairly certain I've heard you say yes, and then it's gone for six after that as yeah, well. Yeah, has to. Yeah, that can happen, and that and that's and that's I guess part of that's part of that's part of why leg spin is so hard, and 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 part of the reason why. Why it's leg, leg spin is hard mentally because you can do everything perfectly and still disappear into the stands, and you know that. And that's that's it takes a special kind of person to come back and do that, time after time after time. When you know you don't have any physical intimidation, it's all up here in the top two inches, and that's what made Shane Warne so so super special. We talked a little bit about impact there. His impact on India in terms of his stats weren't particularly great, certainly in test cricket on the mm. road. Mm. Let's talk about, though, his impact on the IPL, um, one of the early stars of that, with a Rajasthan Royal side, which was, to be honest, a, a, a bunch of misfits, wasn't it? That first um, that first edition of the IPL. Does he really have an impact on, on that tournament, do we think? Uh, I think he has an impact on that tournament because of the momentum that he was able to create with that side. When they lost, he kept them down. When they won, he got them up a little bit, but not too much. You know, we know we don't want to peak until the end of the until the end of the tournament. So I think he had a massive impact, especially on that first IPL and then the subsequent ones afterwards. But that team, I actually had a look at that that squad in two thousand eight. They they were headlined by you know Warren, obviously, but they had Graham Smith. Darren Lehman, maybe more of a you know twenty twenty player, but there's a lot of players there where you're like, um, I'm unsure why this squad has been put together, and they were they were not as not as good as if if you look at the other teams like the you know Brendan McCullough and Ricky Ponting, mm. Kolkata uh, Knight Riders and stuff. So they did a great job winning that first tournament. You you got to think, uh, you know, as for it as a global tournament, having the world's global superstar of cricket winning that in the first year, it, it has to have an impact. There's, there's no doubt about it in my mind. Absolutely. You have a look at the, it's interesting, the two best cricket brains on the planet at that time played in the final. It was Shane Warne against MS Dhoni's CSK side, if I am if I remember correctly. I think that was the final, wasn't it? CSK against Rajasthan. I'm pretty sure it was. You're telling the story. And if you're, if you're wrong, it doesn't really matter. Someone will tell I'm, us. I'm pretty, sure it was, I'm pretty sure it was CSK and Rajasthan in the final. And the two greatest cricket brains on the planet. And what better advertisement for a fledgling tournament that, remember, it, was, it wasn't the global massive phenomenon that it is now. There were other rival tournaments around. It was early days in 2020 cricket. We still didn't know if this if this kind of franchise thing was going to take off, and it took those two absolute super duper stars, A list A plus celebrities, box office guys, 
in the final to give the IPL that credibility that it rode the wave on from from then on. And so that was twofold. That was Warren's personality and his cricket brain powering that product to financial and, and global success. But it was also laying the platform for future risk spinners to, become a, to be able to come in and be successful in that format of the game. I mean, we, th- we talked about it in our history of T20. I don't think very many people would have thought that wrist spin would be the most effective or just about the most effective method of bowling in T20 when we started out. We thought it might have been pace, maybe some finger spin, certainly not wrist spin because it goes air miles, right? So his influence on that format is profound, absolutely profound. And I don't think anybody else in the history of Test cricket could have created that same impact in terms of wrist spinners being successful as a result of that and the personality, the sheer force of his charisma creating that financial success and credibility for the tournament that's now become the premier competition in the world, really. Guys, we've got on the run sheet here unanswerable questions. There's no more info, so it's kind of almost like an unaskable question. What, what, what do we, what do we mean by that? What are the unanswerables that we we want to cover? I reflected on that during the week, and the the unanswerable question for me is: What kind of impact do you think he would have had on cricket had he had a life outside of cricket that that lasted for twenty or thirty years? What kind of impact do we think he might have? potentially had on commentary for the game on on the development of cricket i think of i think of the impact that richie benno had on the development of cricket and things like world series cricket and the development of innovation around cricket a lot of that was associated with benno and benno had a great cricket mind part of the reason that i'm so profoundly sad at the passing of shane warne is the missed opportunity for the world to have experienced and um, and benefited from his imparting his thoughts on on how cricket could become a better product and and how it could be played better. Um, I he- I heard um, in that interview that I referenced with uh, with Isha and and Ricky Ponting, she made mention of the fact that yeah he he had been talking about how he might be going for that England coaching job, but you know who. Exactly. I think that's the unanswerable. That's the biggest unanswerable, you know, that I can think of at the moment. Just on, you know, just current things going on. Imagine if he'd taken that role and and what could have happened out of that. Oh wow. Yeah. Look, I I guess you know you talk about those those interviews. You talk about what impacts he had and. Look, I wasn't shy to to occasionally criticise his commentary, and I think part of that was you know the the fact that. He was Australian, and I, I, it's ingrained in me to to from a cricketing perspective hate Australians and everything that they stand for when they're in opposition of my um, beloved countrymen. But when I actually think about it, I, I just could not believe how much this has impacted me in the past. You know, the past few days, I, I kind of reflected on it. And look, I'm going to share a personal story. When I was like 18 years old. Um, I was just about to make, I, I think, my first grade debut or, or certainly one of the first first grade games I was going to play. And Princess Diana died and they cancelled the whole program on the Saturday because of the funeral. And I was completely and utterly pissed off that my, you know, my, my cricket was called off. And I was like, what, what, what does it matter? Someone's died, you know, get, get over it kind of thing. 
on Saturday when I woke up and I saw the news on my phone that Shane Warner died, but I'd got to get in the car and take my youngest son off to uh, my eldest son, sorry, off to off to cricket. And as I was giving the team talk to my under 11s team, I just started welling up uncontrollably trying to talk to the kids about making sure they backed up and, you know, had a big basket when they were trying to take a high catch or, you know, um, don't tie your shoelaces in the middle of your first run and that kind of stuff. But for me, it's just the impact of that. I, I put this down as like a JFK moment, a Kurt Cobain moment in terms of the impact that it has. And Bordy, to answer your question around that long-term thing, he did everything at a million miles an hour. If he'd have had another 10 years, what could he have done, whether it's England coach, whether it was you know his impact from a commentary perspective, a new entertainment product, whatever it might be, I, I just think that those are the unanswerables that we're we're not going to know, but it feels to me as if he is one of the most important cricketers, if not of our generation um, and the generation before and probably the generation after. But I do think we're going to be talking about him in the same breath as Bradman in, in 80 years' time. And just to tie a few things together, you, you know, the the love-hate or hate-hate relationship with his commentary, his uh, captaincy at, uh, you know, the Rajasthan Royals or his captaincy in general. The biggest impact I think that he could have had as an unanswerable question was around being able to think outside the box strategically. And that, and I think that's why what annoyed me a lot about his commentary was a lot of the time he was saying stuff that I just thought was, you know, a bit nonsense. But those are the things that actually push the game forward and move it into a, a different direction or a better direction maybe. Uh, so I think that's probably, you're right, one of the real unanswerable questions is what kind of impact, would he, how would the game have changed in 20 years' time had he held any kind of position in cricket? And, and he was pretty forward-thinking too, right? Like he embraced the 100, he embraced innovation in the game, he embraced T20 cricket. So I, that that's one of the things for me that I think cricket, the cricket world will miss. It's not his only his charisma and his um, and his personality and and his impact on the game generally, but actually how how he would be able to drive cricket forward as a, as a thinker about the game. Because I don't think there are very many better thinkers about the game than than he has been. And and I know you know I know we're obviously praising him, and I, I think it's completely fine to. I mean, I think all of us around the table will sort of. You know, you sort of use that hate, hate, and and we all know, like we know around the table here, that it's that sports hate is a very different thing than like real hate, and sometimes the the people you enjoy most are the people you hate, you know, you hate, and as oh, in a from, sporting context, in a sporting, yeah, a sporting context, sense, yeah, and yeah. and you know, it's the people that that impact you in in a, those negative ways that crush all those dreams that you have when you're you're supporting a, a, a sports team or a cricket team and things and and he was one of those people and when you know when someone watching that didn't want Australia to win and you'd hear his commentary and you know he was a hundred percent playing to the Australian commentary market mm. he was he was playing to Australian listeners who wanted to to support their team and, and get excited about he'd, it. And he'd got Kerry Packer's advice ringing in his ears, hadn't he, about how to be a broadcaster, I think. He used it to Australia's benefit, though. I think he revved Mitchell Stark up, certainly, and changed the <laughs> changed the position into the slip cordon, to name a couple <laughs> of recent um, examples. We'll come on to maybe what he would have been like as a captain um, and talk about that in a sec, but we, we've got to probably touch upon some of the off-field stuff. Um, you know, a lot probably come out even in the, in the past few days but he obviously missed the World Cup in 2003 due to taking a, a banned diuretic mm -hmm. diet pill. Um, he had a little run-in with the bookmakers with his great friend Mark War. Um, many tabloid stories, which, you know, you, you can only expect when you play that many Ashes series in England. You've got the photographers outside your hotel room 
um, yeah, trying to find out when you break a bed or, or drink too many uh, vodka Red Bulls or whatever it might be. But what do we think about that? Does that tarnish his legacy or, or does it really just add to the rich fabric of it? It doesn't tarnish his legacy because he was he he made no bones about the fact that he was not the perfect individual. He's not the perfect human being, and I don't think he ever set himself up to to be that kind of role model. Um, and certainly, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly, as an Australian, didn't think of him as as the perfect individual. And his his flaws almost made him more endearing to Australian cricket fans and Australians in general. I think that was part of his wider appeal: is that here is this guy on an international stage who at various times in his career was slightly overweight um bore bore the bleached blonde hair he had the he had the goatee he had the earring he had the number 23 on his back reminiscent of michael jordan he had the big nike contract but average people related to him because he was this kind of semi-flawed kind of character and i think that adds to the romance rather than necessarily tarnishing his his reputation, because let's face it, all of the things that befell him in his personal life were all could all be explained by unhappy circumstance, you know, a, a, a naivety or a or a or a misfortune, rather than someone deliberately setting out to to do something nefarious or otherwise. So I think the Australian public was very much ready to forgive Shane Warne his four balls, as I as I am as a as an individual, because we know in ourselves that we're flawed and that we're not perfect people. And I think we were ready to forgive some of that naivety that that befell him throughout his his playing career. The the saddest thing actually is probably we'll probably never see another character like Shane Warne because in this day and age, he would have been cancelled. He would have been, they would have tried to throw him out of the cricket team. He would have been tried in front of the um, public court or the, what is it? Kangaroo the, court. The, 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 the court of public opinion. opinion. Okay, yeah. Um, and he, he never would have got to where he was based on that, not based on what he did on the field. Mm. And you're right, him being completely relatable to everybody in the world who makes mistakes every now and then. And he did that and he paid for them and he was sorry for them. And, and, had, and had regret over it. You know, he regretted not being a better dad to his kids when he was a young man. He certainly regretted the incident in terms of the, the diuretic pill. Again, I, I genuinely, I want to believe in my heart that that was a genuine mistake and that was born out of naivety and, and maybe a little bit of vanity of, of yeah, vanity and ignorance rather than, than some nefarious plot to, to cheat. Um, but but maybe I maybe I look at Warren with rose coloured glasses and, and have my whole life because I f I kind of feel relatable to him. Um, but yeah, what a, what a character, what a man. We've seen the odd Maverick have a go at the captaincy of their international teams. From my perspective, Ian Botham, Andrew Flintoff, and Kevin Peterson all burning in flames after their uh, captaincy runs. Does the fact that Warren didn't get that go with the baggy green actually just enhanced probably the credentials he would have had as captain or would we have liked to have seen that boys oh it would have been great to see it um you know even just thinking i don't know there's the the very famous clip of him you know we've talked about his think his brain cricket brain and you know there's the very famous clip of him bowling to brendan mccullum even very late on in his career in the bbl where he just run, he's he's mic'd up and he's talking through the commentary and he you know, Bowles tosses one up outside off stump. McCullum slashes it, gets a leading edge over cover. 
And then, you know, a couple of balls later when McCullum's back on strike, he sort of says, they say to him, you know, what are you going to do here? And he said, oh, well, he's skied that one over the top, so I think he's going to try and sweep me now, so I'm going to bowl it a bit quicker and I'll, I'll see what happens. And he bowls it a bit quicker. McCullum tries to sweep it and, and he bowls him. And, and, you know, like, to, to have thoughts like that, and you guys, yeah, you've talked about his cricket brain, would have been great to see what he could do. I mean, I think the, the biggest challenge perhaps for him would have been how to use yourself because, uh, you know, yeah, what sometimes that's the hardest thing I think as a captain when you are a bowler and we've you know we talked about it with Pat Cummins and, and everyone else who is a, a an international captain as a bowler it's it's how to divorce yourself as a as a cricketer from what you're doing around the field and stuff but yeah, it would have been great to see I would have loved to have seen Shane Warne as a captain on the cricket field I think what would have worn him down is the man management and the press and the constant external influence on him as an individual and as a face of the Australian cricket team. I don't know how he would have reacted to that over a long period of time. It wears down the best of, of cricketers. And I wonder what effect that would have had on him as on his career. For me, he's almost the perfect vice captain. You know, he is the guy that you can turn to for cricketing advice, but doesn't necessarily have to be the face of the team and the man who, carries the world on his shoulders. I'm sure he would have, and I'm sure he would have been excellent at it. And as a tactical captain, he would have been among Australia's best. And Shane Warne was incredibly fortunate to have Australia's, probably in my view, two best tactical captains in Alan Border and Mark Taylor at the formative stages of his career as he was developing as a bowler and as a, as a, as a player. And I think Australia would have benefited him from him being Australia's captain on the field, but I don't think he would have had the same longevity in his career and in the Australian cricket team because of all of the other things that he would have had to deal with. The clicks in the Australian cricket team famously didn't get along with Steve Waugh and that click of players that were uber intense and uber, you know, pro baggy green. And he was much more of a different kind of character and a different, walked in a different path of life. So those kinds of things, I think, may have had an impact on his success. And I'm kind of glad, actually, that he was able to continue focusing on what he did best, and that's being the best leg spinner of all time. Can can we? You just mentioned um, that longevity piece, and I think you know probably we've talked quite extensively about him, you know, as as a person and and the mental side of things. Let's bring it back to cricket. Uh, it's staggering that he played, you know, hundred when you when you said one hundred and forty odd tests. That that's an amazing effort. I know, you know, I know there are there are going to be many people in the Hall of Fame that have these kind of records, and that's you know how they amass these these huge amount of stats. But when I was doing a bit of digging and looking at the and, and thinking about what uh, Ken Rutherford had said about consistency, so many, when you look through his series stats, they are remarkably consistent in terms of, I think his, his first three series he were, were pretty tricky for him. The next 15 series across five years, he only averaged above 30 in a series once, was 36 against Sri Lanka. Then, you know, he had we sort of talked about those tricky years of 98, 99, 2000, 2001, where he was sort of, in and out, had the had the injury issues and, and things. Then the next 17 series in a row to finish his career in 2006, his worst average was 33. And, you know, just that they were all just from that, that level of in the 20s to, to 30s. And, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing to think of someone as a, a league spinner to have been so consistent. I still kind of can't get my head around that. His impact on winning is 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 enormous, and I and I think when you think about uh, his his legacy from a cricketing perspective, I, I suppose that's 
probably going to be a huge part of it because that Australian team was just unbelievable. Pretty much this whole career, they they won everything, and they just it seemed like when he was bowling, they couldn't you know they couldn't lose almost. And and I probably I mean we probably uh, we should probably I know it wasn't an Australian win, but we should probably talk about his efforts in that two thousand and five. Ashes series because it was unbelievable. Bowled him! How about that? <laughs> Absolutely brilliant from Shane Warne. He's made a few batsmen look a bit foolish over the years, and there's no disgrace in Andrew Strauss looking a bit foolish, but he did here. I think I heard Michael Vaughan the other day saying that he thought that if Warne hadn't played in that series, England would have won that 4 1. And you know, maybe, maybe you know, there's another unanswerable question. But he was the one person that just stood up, and every single moment, you know, it's supposed to be the greatest Test series of, of all time. But it is, and and yeah, well, there you go. And but it was there's he, a DVD that's called the greatest series. It's a little bit like that Nathan Astor one that's called like the Master Blaster. So you can self-title a DVD, and it is so exactly. But yeah, he you know he just picked up wickets at such crucial times. He, yeah, it, it's it's a perfect example of someone who even in at nearing the end of their career was just such a, a technician at, at their art. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he got 40 wickets in that series, and the next best I think was 20 wickets in in the series. So. Um, and the thing that stood out for me in that, and it's probably what I kind of love about him and, and sort of equally hated about him at the time was he was, you know, he was as aggressive as any fast bowler as a, as a spin bowler. He, you know, once he was over that white line, he was a horrible, horrible guy on the field to play against, but he gave credit. And the the thing I'll, I'll always remember about that, that series is, um, Andrew Flintoff got a brilliant 70-odd in the game at Edgebaston that England ended up just clinging on to win. And Warren practically chased him off the field after he got that 70 to go and pat him on the shoulder and say, well played. You, you could see him, the, the, there was a massive roar because Flintoff had just been out. So he was getting the, you know, the applause from the crowd. And, and Warren was just shouting at the top of his lungs, Fred, Fred, and then chased him off to say, um, well played, and and he had for, to a large extent that Australian team on his shoulders through that um, through that series. Of, you know, a fantastic cricket in memory for for me as a twenty odd year old at that point. And, and look, you know, I think we can probably just talk for for hours and hours about him. I think it probably a, a good place to finish up, seeing as this is the Hall of Fame, is is to talk about um, and probably just hearing from you, really, Baldy, about the his legacy. And, and what you think it will be for Australian cricket in particular, because, you know, when I, I it'll probably come as no surprise that in this top five, when we get down to it, there'll be someone called Don Bradman who's also in that in that realm. You know, ha, it's very hard to compare a bowler and a batter, and, and the stats of Bradman are just so remarkable that they're, they're way ahead of everyone else. But just from a from a legacy perspective, I mean, Binksy's already sort of said that he thinks that Warner is, is the most impactful player for, of our generation. What is he going to mean to Australians, do you think, in 50 years' time? I mean, again, a very unanswerable question, but, you know, what are we thinking? I think as far as bowlers are concerned, Shane Warne is not only the greatest Australian bowler that's ever played cricket, I think he's the greatest league spin bowler that's ever played cricket, and you can make an argument that he's the greatest bowler that has ever played the game of cricket. In terms of post-war era players... And I'm I'm counting Bradman as a pre-war era player, not a not a post-war era player. I feel like he is among the top one or two most impactful players to have changed the game 
in terms of the way that cricket is played because he is almost single-handedly responsible for the resurgence of wrist spin in modern times. Prior to 1990, there were very few wrist spinners with all due respect to Trevor Holmes and Abdul Qadir and, and, and others of his ilk. He popularised wrist spin bowling to the point now where it is the most, almost the most sought-after style of bowling in the most popular tournament in the world in the IPL. Um, sure, out-and-out pace is, is always is always sought after, but but wrist spin does the business for for those popular tournaments. So his impact on the way cricket has is played from a bowling point of view cannot be understated. And I think it's it's not just us remembering Shane Warne moments and hours and days after his passing, but I think it is true that he is the most impactful bowler that we have seen in 80 years of Test cricket. And I think he will continue to be the most impactful bowler that we will see in our lifetimes. I just want to leave you guys with um, one thing that I penned um, in trying to think about Shane Warne. And, and I struggled to put into any kind of words anything that would do justice to his legacy. But I found a a few a few words that I would like to share with you all, um, mostly because my son has been learning haiku at school, so I was I was practicing this during the week. Um, Brilliant. We watched him in awe. Great plan, perfect precision, but gee whiz, that fizz. Well, I don't think we can end it any better than that. But end it, we will. Um, we've got a slab of VB on the table. We'll raise a. Bottle for the great Shane Keith Warn, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.